Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast exploring the ever-growing intersection of biology, healthcare, and technology. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. Today's episode is all about the history and future of infusing tech into healthcare with the goals of improving outcomes and lowering costs, and features one of the leading voices in the field, Jonathan Bush. Jonathan, or JB, started his career in healthcare as an ambulance driver and army medic, and then met Todd Park, another BioEats World guest, while at Bose Allen. Together, they founded Athena Women's Health Clinic, which evolved from a clinic specializing in maternity care to one of the original digital health companies providing cloud-based services and point-of-care clinical and back-office tools for provider, which was later called Athena Health. In this conversation with A16Z general partner Julie Yu, who is also a digital health builder, JB discusses this evolution, how it mirrors the bigger trend shifts in healthcare, and how it has informed the mission of his new company, Zeus, which he compares to a GitHub for health tech. JB and Julie cover what's changed since the launch of Athena 25 years ago, how to disrupt an entrenched system like healthcare, the role that regulation plays in this space, and the underappreciated importance of bottom-up sales. And one last thing before we start. Please note that there is some colorful language in this episode, in case you have young children listening. Now, to the conversation, which begins with JB describing how he and Todd Park came up with the initial idea for Athena. And we looked at lots of different highly variable, highly expensive episodes and settled on maternity. There was a lot of it. 4 million babies a year. And it was all over the place. C-section rates from 10 to 50%. Uh, NICU admissions in some markets, 1,000 NICU days per 1,000 babies born. And no real measurement or control and no real financial consequence to the variability. In fact, everyone did better with the bad outcomes because there were just more things to do, all of which could be billed. And so we decided that'll be where we'll go. Also, we liked the fact that there's a retail front end Mm-hmm. Most surgical procedures that are expensive you know, are referred in from primary care and you're in this guild-like latticework yeah. of who knows who and golfed with who. And if you do maternity, you can actually go right to moms and yep. say, look, how comes for better? We had this idea that midwifery would be the key. In the army, you know, medics get given huge range of procedures that they're allowed to right. do, but only within very narrow prescribed conditions that are set out in algorithms. Mm -hmm. But then you could do things that nobody would let a 20-year-old, no-college kid do in the civilian. You know, you could do tracheostomies and you could obviously do IVs and all kinds of procedures as long as you were inside those bands. The initial vision was always, we're going to be a full-stack clinic that will deliver care directly to customers versus tech or infrastructure or anything of that sort. Well, the goal was process control, right? The goal was to invest lots and lots and lots of time with pregnant women. The basic thesis was you could be pregnant and not sick. And that if we could grab all the people who are pregnant and not sick and somehow not operate on them, they would do better and the cost would be lower. And yep. we would, but you're right. The tech was a side, it was a side with it was just buy an EMR or buy some sort of software system off the shelf. And we auditioned lots of them. And we were sort of astonished at the lack of process control automation in any of these. They were all really related to documentation and claim presentment, even the medical records. They were really about claims. And so we, little by little by little, 
you know, we built a little website to keep track of first perinatal visits. And then we built a little website to keep track of blood sugar levels, urine dipsticks, and just basically little flow sheets that kind of sat on the side on this website so that the doctor could keep track of what, or the midwife or the doula could keep track of what mattered and share it with the others. This is when nothing was on the internet, yeah. but we, that's how we got started. And so it was a means to an end that was not the end. I am right. stressed. So this is the origin story of Athena Health. And what's so interesting in, in terms of what you're describing is you must feel like you're in such a circle of life situation right now, right? You were building a full stack clinic that was trying to challenge the status quo, value-based payment model with the notion of extension of scope of practice of mid-levels mm-hmm. and the creation of new tech for clinical workflows. And, you know, fast forward to 2021. <laughs> I feel a little bit like Rip Van Winkle waking up with you <laughs> and platform company and all of the tools are so fabulous. It's been 25 years, 24 years since starting Athena Health. And ironically, a, a lot of the things that make it exciting to me are the things that I thought certainly couldn't be that hard 25 years ago mm-hmm. and would be done within a couple of years seem to be happening just now. Like Rip Van Winkle didn't miss anything in his 100 years or, or in this case, 25 years of sleep. So super interesting in that regard. But you get this Athena Health clinic model off the ground and then you become a revenue cycle company. Connect those two dots for us. What happened and what led you down that path? Rip Van Winkle got up too early. <laughs> we needed sleep 100 years so the world wanted this. This was, you know, GDP was growing like mad. There wasn't interest in savings or not much. There's a theme around bundling and unbundling and sort of rebundling in a lot of aspects of our lives. And healthcare was organized in sort of these whole life risk piles. You know, you got to take on the whole life. And we were saying, well, we only want this. And there was all kinds of bundling problems with that. We would do much better. We would get a contract with a primary care group that had risk. We would do much better with their lives. And women would switch into that primary care group in order to get us to have their baby. Which made us, from a whole dollar risk perspective, kind of a shit magnet, right? Because Mm -hmm. we're attracting in people who have a big, large expense coming around the bend. And then once the expense is gone, they leave and go back to whatever was convenient for them. Classic moral hazard. So the only way it was going to work is if all the different risk-bearing entities used us. And we couldn't get to all of them in time. And we knew we couldn't do this in every market. So we we realized that this just, the market wasn't ready for this. Mm Uh, and we sort of, sort of looked around, what do we have that works that we could you know, not fail our angel investors with? And it was this website that we called AthenaNet. In fact, I'll never forget one of my last ditch efforts to fund the birth center concept was with a, a venture capitalist from Dallas. He's the only frog I haven't kissed yet. And uh, we were in the slider rockers in our birth center. Uh, you know, there's nothing mm-hmm. more powerful than slider rocker. He's feeling it. There's a tub and all these <laughs> things. And he's really going to do it. And he says, well, Jonathan, I, I got to say, I just love everything you've done. And um, I don't think it's going to work. But I'd love a license to Athena net. Mm-hmm. And I will pay you $11 million, which was the amount of money I was valuing the entire company. If I could just have that code, you all can use it too. And uh, I'll give you $11 million and you can go do your birth center. He's like, ah, oh, thank you very much. You know, let me think about it. And I, you know, walked up to the shredder, dumped my whole birth center, 
business plan. plan. <laughs> and I called up Todd. I was like, good news and bad news. <laughs> good news is we're going to live. Bad news is the midwives are all fired. And it was traumatic uh, for Todd, who is emotional and beautiful and carries a three-dimensional working model of the entire universe in his head. So he had to recalc. But we got our team together. And but for the midwives, everybody stayed and said, well, you know, we'll, we'll make it possible to do Athena Women's Health for thousands of other entrepreneurs. We'll be the base camp, not the summiters. The ultimate pivot. Yeah. And that became our mission is to, to really make it possible for doctors and other entrepreneurs in healthcare to build unique models. And as you know, that's still today what inspires me most yeah. is to be an enabler of many other people's ideation, creation, invention. Love it. So back then when this was all happening, it was called healthcare IT. Largely the products of that era were characterized by, you know, they were largely B2B products. The care model was oriented around in-person clinic visits and facility visits. And, you know, the use cases were mostly administrative. And, you know, today we're sitting in an era of digital health, which I would argue is differentiated by its focus on the consumer as a primary end user, the focus on decentralized care models that have an online component and, you know, not just the administrative, but really the clinical and the consumer experience elements of the use case domain. And the other big difference between healthcare IT and digital health is that you have digital health companies going straight for the throats of big med, as you like to call them. So, you know, we refer to them as challenger clinics or, you know, neo carriers who are building full stack insurance companies and competing directly with the United Health and the, and the Humanities of the world. I loved your typing there of these new companies. I would add one more characteristic that they have, yeah. which is that the tech and the care are in the same entity. And fully integrated. So in the era of early Athena, there was the tech company, there was the service work company, and then there was the care company. Mm-hmm. They were totally discreet. So there were billing services and TPAs, and they needed to know nothing about tech. Then there were tech companies that needed no operational or technology prowess. Today, you're seeing a fusion of those. And I think of it as more of a tech provider, you know, a provider uh, of tech and care. And by hybridizing like that, unbundling and then rebundling, as we discussed earlier, you can iterate the model. You can actually put yourself on a scale curve that you can't do if you're constrained by the number of doctor appointment slots that exist in the day, which is the old model. Uh, so when you get out of the claims-based payment architecture, you also get out of the human-based care architecture and into more of a hybridized one, which if you think about early Athena, trying to fuse in doulas, nutritionists, social workers, clinical nurse midwives, into a doctor's life. So the doctor had more of a pyramid instead of just, hey, you got 15 slots a day. you get more leverage. You've got 15 slots a day, but it can be for the cream of clinical complexity that rises up off of 150 slots a day. So, you know, Women's Health was delivering 3,300 babies a year and there were only six doctors. Mm -hmm. And it's three, four X what the average OB does. But we had this wonderful phalanx of mid-level providers. And technology is just a new kind of mid-level provider, maybe a low-level provider. Well said. Yeah. And part of why healthcare IT was hard is that, you know, processes are inherently heterogeneous in healthcare. There's not a lot of things that are industrialized or repeatable. And Well, when you're required to take sort of whole life risk, the mapping can be endless, right? Exactly. Whereas yeah. if you just take a piece, you can be so precise and so much more rich 
in your mapping. And you can yep. cross from just clinically relevant and in the books and documented to intuitively joyful, attractive. I mean, one of the big new vectors of care in digital health era is engagement. Mm-hmm. Is Instead of access, meaning, will I get in trouble for not being there when they come begging? <laughs> it's how creepy can I be to stay with them all the time, right? Exactly. To actually be completely present and instant on Jiminy Cricket in their pocket all day long. It's a complete reversal of the question. And that's that idea of creating an omnipresent, you know, digital first row of care mm-hmm. many of these companies have in common. Yeah. In other words, like the previous healthcare system, it forced the patient to optimize against the provider's schedule right. and availability and capacity. And we're now flipping that on its head and saying, why can't we center around the patient? That's very valuable. That's a wonderful new paradigm to be living in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. As you were a classic disruptor in this space, and as you see this new model of digital health disruption, what works and what doesn't, given the fact that healthcare is what it is and really doesn't operate under free market principles? Well, there's lots on the topic of the demand curve, that in order for the demand curve to work, you have to take the whole life and not deal with someone who's rich and not deal with someone who's poor. I mean, the number of people in America for whom a lower price will return more market share and vice versa is absurdly small. And so for anything other than whole life care, it's virtually non-existent. And hey, we realize that until we can move your whole demand, can move your whole cost of care, we're just this weird side order sort of feature swag that people use or don't use or don't understand. And now if I can actually say, if you choose this doctor or this mode of care, I can move the entire cost curve. So that's the beginning of the demand curve. But then you have the more interesting potential for good work, for real invention, is in this sort of kaleidoscope of narrow focused factories, digital focused factories, you know. Mm -hmm. Take on just alcohol abuse. Take on just substance abuse. Take on just weight gain. Take on just diabetes. Take on just pre-diabetes. And use an integrated, coordinated, digital, personal, chemical strategy and iterate it Agile style, constantly, through much more intimate biosurveillance than waiting for hospitalization claims to show up, Mm -hmm. what we're used to seeing as the only kind of cost-effectiveness measure that a payer, for example, would use. So to build that whole big stack is a shit ton of work just to get this narrow, laser-focused factory. Right. And so what I'm interested in doing is creating a, what, a lending library, a a GitHub, a, a place to go get all the things that are too much building to do for your, all the your narrow laser focus started, but are important. And then the other thing is just coordination, that these narrow slices, you know, really, really need longitudinal integration of information much more than, you know, a medical center that maybe occasionally, you know, the patient goes to an emergency room across town or, mm-hmm. or breaks their leg in veil or whatever it is. So, the second thing I'm interested in is, is a longitudinal backbone that this new era, by the way, the previous generation actually loses money on coordination, right? Mm-hmm. Loses money on not getting to redo a lab because they see the results from the previous one that was done by a competitor. This new generation needs it existentially. It's a threat not to have it. Right. You have this ability to assemble a full stack without building it yourself or buying one of the, uh, with respect to my beautiful Athena colleagues, something that's built for the claims-based era. And it doesn't allow you to, remember we talked about the key part of the phenotype here is that the tech and the care are merged. 
If you're buying a full stack closed system that's only accessible through the fields of the workflow, how do you merge the tech? Oh, I wrote an interface. You know, it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So you really need to be able to control your stories and iterate them and change them. You need to control the layer of tech that is unique to your value prop. And if it's possible, not have to worry about the layers of tech that's the same across everyone, but exactly. needs to be performant, reliable, secure, et cetera. Those are the two things that I think are with this generation will really need. And I, Icarus, like I'm trying to provide both. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about the fact that we're at this tipping point where the volume of data that's being produced outside of the traditional EHR and claims chassis is now far more voluminous and far more valuable and meaningful than that in the traditional silos. And, you know, we essentially have this new market segment, as you're saying, of digital health companies that are the buyers of tech solutions after, you know, years of building the same componentry over and over again in their siloed wall gardens. And we in healthcare like to romantically, you know, sort of make the analogy between fintech and healthcare. So we saw the same thing play out in the early days of fintech with companies like Stripe and Plaid who emerged to serve as kind of the interoperability layer of financial services market. From that infrastructure bloomed thousands of fintech startups and even non-fintech startups, right? Like commerce, e-commerce, general tech companies all became payments companies. We want Plaid to be a native tool for all healthcare builders. If a patient says, I'd I'd like to know my risk score, Mm -hmm. knowing their grocery bill is the best way to know their risk score, not knowing whether they had their appendix out. So there's a lot of crossover, not just in terms of the form that the industry will take, but the content itself, the literal information itself has crossover value. Absolutely. Yeah. And so to take that analogy further and where it breaks down is really, you know, when you look at the state of interoperability in our country. So, you know, healthcare is, as you and I always talk about, one of the few industries where regulation can actually be a catalyst for innovation, you know, versus a barrier, which it is in in many other industries. And there have been historically lots of categories of products that have specifically emerged on the backs of some specific, you know, form of regulation or or policy, whether it's EDI, whether it's e-prescribing, obviously the most notable recent example is EHRs with Meaningful Use and High Tech Act. And yet, you know, we are now 12 years and $35 billion into, you know, meaningful use. We have, you know, the majority of providers have adopted EHRs in some way, shape or form, but I don't think anyone in practice is pounding the table saying, wow, look at how interoperable our healthcare system is at this point. And we still have yet to implement like the final provisions of the 21st Century Crows Act around that. So, you know, what's going on? Like, should we be throwing in the towel? Is it, you know, just um, fool's errand to, to think that we can achieve this? Should we be wildly optimistic you know, we're on the right track? Or is this just one of those things that, like many tectonic shifts, is just going to take a long time and we have to be patient? We're really just in the first innings of all this playing out. Yeah, I think an important characteristic of regulation to keep in mind is if there is a well-established and acceptable demand for something, regulation can get obstacles out of the way. Um, Whereas if the regulator themselves envisions something happening, and tries to create it mm-hmm. through regulation, many undesired <laughs> and very yep. surprising consequences will ensue. So what excites me about this next chapter that did not excite me about meaningful use or HIPAA is that there is in this category, this $14 billion of venture capital just in 2020 alone into these digital health providers. And so they can go to their lawmakers and say, I need this. This is to create something that people want, that votes care about. In that instance, I think regulation can work well. So there's a really legitimate group of really compelling providers that actually are on a demand curve and actually do want this. Mm -hmm. So it's not just well-meaning rulemakers 
that are hoping for good things to happen from the side. Yeah. Um, it's being pulled by a mass. And uh, that's always easier for a politician to deal with. Today, however, we've got the Cures Act going into enforcement, which will allow patients directly to mandate that their data go places, even if there's not a doctor there. And there are these companies, these thousands of companies that are ready to consume it. Uh, So I think this next round, after many sort of false starts or partial starts or embarrassing flops, but we've been lumping along, moving, I think, more steps forward than backward. But I feel like we're positioned now, both with the regulatory environment, the business environment of these digital forward companies all gathered at the edge of the moat trying to get in, and the tech capabilities, yep. you know, the data extraction tools and skills that exist today to take one of these shitty federal format messages and actually get wring the meaning out of it um, mm-hmm. has never been there before. That is one thing when I woke from my Rip Van Winkle sleep <laughs> and saw, I thought, wow, you know, this shit could work. Yeah, the primordial soup elements are all there. What about the financial dimension of this? You know, healthcare, again, is one of the few industries where growth is bad. Like we actually lament growth, we lament more spend. Right. And I mean, that's you know, largely because of the value equation being screwed up where you know, if we were paying more and getting more, then we would not be complaining. But the fact that we don't feel like we're getting anything close to the value that we should be getting is, is really the issue here. So right. do you think it's possible in our lifetime, JB, that we might flip from saying we have to spend less on healthcare to wanting to spend more on healthcare because we see that value equation actually lining up? Yeah, I mean, first of all, healthcare has been taken hostage, the word I mean, to mean a series of interventions paid for through insurance claims by third parties. That thing is not a healthy thing. It's a goiter, you know, around our neck and it gets bigger and it just, it looks and feels ugly. And the worst thing about healthcare is not how much it costs. It's, for all that money, it's still not an expression of our humanity. We don't get to express ourselves with our healthcare. In this digital health era that we're in, there is enormous room for self-expression and for health to mean something besides only this goiter of third-party paid claims-based interventions. Interesting. So we see this in all kinds of edge computing scenarios, right? The iPod is this piece of shit thing appealing only to angry, depressed teenagers, right? (laughs) But click, 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 tick, you know, the clicky, tickies, heavy-weighted, nice thing evolves, emerges, grows, you know, agile style until we're doing 10 times more computing than we were before, but we're doing it in this form factor with a price point that's a quarter or a third of a PC. And maybe we still have the PCs somewhere, you know, we'll probably still have some hospitals when we're all done with it, but not going there for pap smears or appendicitis or have our knee repaired. You know, there'll be point solutions for that. So we'll do lots more care, lots more touching, but in a vastly more tech-enabled way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we'll hopefully we'll spend more on it, but it'll be an expression of our humanity. It'll be related to our weight and love life and sleep and progeny and all kinds of things that are truly human expressions. And the amount of money we spend legally mandated to buy, you know, emergency room coverage will be sucked down to a, a little tiny nub of what it is today. And people can choose and trick out, and yeah, mine has unlimited in vitro, and mine has no in vitro, and you know, mine has unlimited mental health, and mine has crisis only, and mine's all digital, and mine's all in person. All of that becomes possible when we get this edge version of healthcare, this data forward, 
tech version of healthcare out and established. Yep. So you and I are both optimists and we love this vision. What's the failure mode in this scenario? What could go wrong? What is today stopping from this vision from playing out? Well, I think each push creates massive failure and massive unintended consequence and massive bubble pop. I think right now you have a lot of people crowded around the self-insured employers, Mm -hmm. right? The ERISA rules and the agility of a large self-insured is just a better place to be than a health plan, of which there are very few that are quasi, they're they're sort of Soviets, you know, quasi-governmental and lots of committee people and it's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the board is a little bit political and the head of the bank who's never known a Band-Aid in his life is the chairman. And, you know, it, it just these they're very pitiful looking when you look at them as businesses and they're, you know, perfectly fine when you look at them as, you know, the bloated, enormous great-grandchildren of mutuals. And so that's probably not the right place to go. There's just not enough clarity on the demand curve working there. There's not enough interest. There's not enough courage appropriately so, among benefits administrators to jam new ideas on their employees. Mm -hmm. I think people will learn to go after smaller employers and be a little humbler about their beginnings. But I think, again, when you read Machiavelli, you know, or the Bible or the freaking Old Testament or anything, you know, you got to go out in the desert alone and collect, start with the prostitutes and the, you know, the isolated. Uh, and then you work your way back to the core. There's your version of disruptive innovation. Correct. Correct. And it's, it's not a, you know, I mean, pick a story. So there's Snow White in the woods with the dwarfs. I mean, you know, then she got the dwarfs on her side. And <laughs> I, I yeah. think whenever somebody says, no, screw it, I'm going to cut right to the castle, to the chase scene, it doesn't end well. And mm-hmm. there's a fair amount of that in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fair amount of I'm, I'm connected. I've got a guy on my board or one of my investors is friends with a guy at United. And I used to have retreats for entrepreneurs in Maine in the More Disruption Please program at Athena. And we'd always have a theme. And one of them was about enterprise sales. And the theme was don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was basically do not sell to somebody who will double your revenues or more. You know, your biggest customer should not double you. I mean, Athena sold to independent practices, small yeah. ones. You know, four docs, five docs, one by one. Then our big deal was 28 docs, low yep. country primary care in, you know, South Carolina. Holy cow, 28 docs. Mm-hmm. And we worked our way up. There was great strength in that. There was great camaraderie, confidence, and we could be more product centric. We didn't have to do totally what any one customer did. No one customer threw us off of our product keel. We could be product centric, mm-hmm. be ourselves, build a sense of self that it was therefore more compelling and more collective in nature. But I mean, and so you're describing like bottoms up sales basically, which has been like the white whale of healthcare, right? And that it goes back to what we said earlier, where that's possible if you can find a segment of the market in which processes are relatively homogenous so that you have an insertion point where your product can be repeatable across multiple players. Yeah. And, and that I would argue that that just hasn't been the case, right? For either at the individual consumer level or even like the SMB level. I guess arguably Athena maybe was the first version, like first example of doing this right. You make a good point. Like one of the reasons why this next run could end in a lot of sadness is because the tools you would need to build for small business, really need a lot of big business to justify the investment. Mm-hmm. And the thought for what we're working on now is, you know, is there a utility? Is there a lending library? Is there some sort of accelerator, a road network that you don't have to actually cut down every tree between here and Philadelphia to go there? Mm-hmm. You know, you can actually ride on a road that's already built. 
And that's the idea for what I'm focused on for Zeus is to go find the things that all of these people need and build them. Like everybody should be able to get a 360 degree view of a patient who wants it, who wants one created of all the claims and charts and labs created on them. That should be a thing that you don't have to spend any time or money building. You should be able to put in a name and woof, you get this beautiful blossom around the little bit of data that you had. I think that that is a thing that healthcare is ready for right now, that we can build really fast, that the legal frameworks going into enforcement on July 1 provide for. You don't even need to be a doctor to get it. So you can target, as we said, the health categories for now and work your way back into the third-party paid stuff. And so that's one that's there. Another one is all of the pieces you would need to build remote care CRM. You know, every one of these guys has got to build private, secure, HIPAA compliant messaging and video visits and appointments and all that stuff shouldn't have to be what you spend your first $10 million of VC on. Mm-hmm. You know, that should be like AWS. You grab it, you use it, you pay a couple of pennies and you move on to the thing that's unique and right. you spend your money there. Yep. I think that will make it easier to target smaller customers that you can win with earlier Yep. And get to the whales later when you're big and strong. So you, J.B. Van Winkle, wakes up in 25 years' time. You have Zeus in place. You've got all these other elements of the primordial soup, as we described. What do you think you'll see in the next 25 years that will <laughs> be a surprise, be a disappointment, or be success? For me, what I'm here to do is what we imagined doing, exactly what we imagined doing with a different business model. And as we said earlier, sometimes you go for it and you fail And then you pick up the carcass of that and in it is to be found, you know, the ingredients of the next push. So for me, Zeus is going to be this quiet, barely known, like the credit bureaus, you know, connective tissue. And this next generation of digital health company will be the companies, the names that we know. But this time the connections will hold and it won't just be billing and insurance information that is shared. It'll be a combine card that every American can share to the degree that they wish across a beautiful kaleidoscope of incredibly effective pointed digital tech solutions. Awesome. That was amazing. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help of the A16Z bio team, Tommy Heron and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you like this episode, be sure to check out our conversation with JB's Athena Health co-founder, Todd Park, called Value Versus Volume in Healthcare. And last but not least, if you are enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.